Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, that is your time. If you are new here, I am really, really grateful that you're tuning in. Thank you for that. I hope you're going to get a ton of value from this episode. I just want to say thanks for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's entrepreneur really impressed me. Sure, his business, Raptor Maps, is a whole lot more than meets the eye, but that's also true for Nikhil Vakaver, the CEO and co-founder of Raptor Maps. While this is both his first startup and his first job out of school, grad school that is, I'm sure you'll find as well that his wisdom and thoughtfulness come across much more seasoned than a first-time entrepreneur. Nikhil and his team aspired to create the system of record for the solar industry. You can think of it as kind of a slack for solar, where not only the data for a project, but also the notes go to live and are easily accessible. If you thought Raptor Maps was just another drone inspection company, you are going to love this episode. And if you love founder stories, well, you're in for a real treat because Nikhil's got a great one. If like me, you love hearing founder stories every single week, well, you should subscribe to the show because we've got them coming at you twice a week. And you can also always go to mysuncast.com where we've got over 450 additional founder stories and startup advice archived for your listening pleasure. Lastly, a very special thank you to those of you who've taken the time to leave Suncast a rating and review lately, like this note from user named Consistent Excellent. I love that name, by the way, on Apple Podcasts. And it says, Suncast should be at the top of your podcast list. Nico takes the time to get to know his guests and consistently produces outstanding episodes. Now, the review actually takes the time to express gratitude directly to me, which I'm honored to read, but... Won't go ahead, go into in detail here so as to not seem too self ingratiating. I do want to thank Consistent Excellence for that review. I aspire to your username. And I just want to let you know that you too can easily leave a review just like that. It's fast and easy. Seriously, it's the easiest way that I've seen. Just go over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and they'll take care of the rest. I'm so, so incredibly grateful for the more than 60 five-star reviews that we've got. It helps more than you know, and it always reminds me that people are actually out there listening and getting value from this show. Okay, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, we are going to have a lot of fun today working backwards through unwinding how someone that effectively is an astro scientist and aeronautics engineer with credentials like MIT could find themselves 
with uh, the rest of us solving climate change through solar. Nikhil Vatavgar is the CEO and co-founder of Raptor Maps, which, as many of you will recognize, is a critical element of the information management software layer that many of us are increasingly dependent on. And they've built quite a name for themselves with 50 gigawatts of solar plants in more than 40 countries that they are now providing remote sensing and analytics and a whole slew of other services. And if you, like me, have wondered, where did this company come from? And how did these guys decide what they wanted to work on? Well, you're in luck because that's what we're going to talk about today. First, let me welcome Nikhil to Suncast. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here speaking to all the, the solar warriors and uh, looking forward to our, our discussion. Yeah, man. It's good to have you as well. Uh, I mentioned to you that I've long known about the company of Raptor Maps and probably secretly long wanted to kind of figure it out, but didn't have the time to, and it didn't intersect with a whole lot of the stuff I was doing. And I was grateful when your man, Shane, reached out to me and said, hey, what do you know about Raptor Maps? Because some, oftentimes that's how folks end up getting onto the show. Uh, and so I'm grateful for the opportunity to really dig into your story. And, and it's a great one. As I've gotten to know you guys, I'm really more and more impressed by what you've built. So kudos to you there. I'd like to step into a bit of your your upbringing and your your history. As I understand, you're a first-generation American and your family came over from India as working professionals, as, as many families, especially in the solar industry and, and engineering software have, have done. And I'd love to hear a bit about the, the nature of the pursuit of knowledge through the context of your family unit. Predominantly, when you were growing up, was the conversation around the dinner table pedestrian or was it always kind of seeking knowledge. How would you characterize the way your parents influenced your thought process around personal growth? Yeah. So when you mentioned the dinner table, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, is Jeopardy. So (laughs) that gives you a sense of what the dinner table was, was like, like literally, uh, you know, it it was kind of like the right, the right time, uh, when that aired and, um, yeah. you know, that was like, that was like the, the exciting thing. Um, that was kind of like the, the highlight. So certainly when it comes to, you know, what are the different types of things that, that we would talk about and, and prioritize, you know, it's, uh, education and, um, and the pursuit of knowledge is, is very, very high up there. Um, you know, what have you read? What are you studying? Um, yeah. you know, what are, what are all the different things that, uh, you know, that, that are on the horizon? Um, uh, so it's not to say that, uh, we didn't, uh, we didn't have a lot of fun talking about other stuff too, but certainly, as you can imagine, um, my family was one that prioritized education yeah. very highly. Yeah. Your mom was a writer for the Times of India. Yeah, that's right. She actually came over as the uh, the foreign correspondent. Uh, so she was, you know, one of those classic like 80s sitcom stories, like Scrapping in Queens, like that. That was her, you know, trying to make you know it. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Did, uh, did, she, uh, did she make it? She did. She actually ended up, uh, um, now she has her PhD and she's actually a professor, uh, for communications. So yeah, she had a good story arc. So glad my, uh, my brother and I didn't interfere with that too much. <laughs> <laughs> did you like many look up to your parents as examples of what to do, or did you kind of push away and say, I'm going to find my own path when you're coming up? Yeah, I think, well, my parents, they were very strict in some ways and very 
kind of lacks in others. So I think their their uh, philosophy is, and going back to your original question, you know, build this foundation of knowledge um, that's going to enable you to pursue whatever pathway you want to pursue. And then from there, you know, it's your life, go live it. Um, so I think that's where they were like, hey, you, you know, you've got to prioritize, you know, mm. education, obviously, you know, going to a, a good university and all that. But then what you do from there, you know, we'll feel like that's, you know, we're, we're, we're hands off at that point. Why did you pursue engineering, but, but more specifically biomedical engineering? Yeah, so I love math and science, as many kids do. Um, and, you know, I saw that my, uh, my dad was a, a mechanical engineer and he, um, he worked for Ford until um, he retired. So, you know, he's a full lifer in the auto industry. And I, I just love the fact that you could take kind of any, any problem and break it down into, into numbers. And I thought that was a very, very powerful thing to do. So I always knew, I always knew that I wanted to, to be an engineer and, and, you know, it would also create optionality because, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really cut off any career pathways. It only, um, you know, increases them. As for why biomedical, I think this, you know, especially with my personality, I, I definitely saw, there were a couple things. One is, you know, I liked, uh, I liked the medical profession. I thought that that was really interesting the way people were, you know, applying these principles to actually help people. As you can probably tell, I'm a bit of an extrovert. So, <laughs> you know, the thought of kind of sitting alone somewhere and just, you know, writing in a notebook, uh, that didn't appeal to me as much. And so, um, so I was like, okay, well, I know I want to be an engineer. You know, medicine seems like it could be a good career. Let's kind of uh, combine these two things. And what I really liked about biomedical engineering is that you got a really strong foundation, not just in mechanical engineering, but electrical engineering, chemical engineering, even software. So in terms of forming a basis um, for kind of how to look at the world in a set of tools, it was a perfect fit for me. Yeah, there's a gap on your on your LinkedIn that I'll call out because I think that it's funny that you worked at a place a lot of folks would die to get into and you don't even talk about it. So talk about the year between uh, Johns Hopkins and MIT. Yeah, so I, um, I was actually working at Accenture in their federal services division in, uh, in Washington, D.C. And yeah, that was actually a fantastic experience because if you think of, obviously, you know, we have internships and things like that, but your first, your first real job, you know, you build up a lot of a lot of skills that aren't just specifically about all about that job. And I think even though it was, it was just a year before I went up to MIT to pursue my PhD, you know, what I learned during that year at Accenture was, was fantastic. And yeah, little plug for them. I think pretty high quality company. So I will say I didn't leave because I didn't like Accenture. <laughs> I just was like, uh, I think, you know, when, when you get the call from MIT, it's kind of hard to say no. Yeah. What tools from that year at Accenture do you find that you're still utilizing now as a, as an entrepreneur uh, or just as a, as a leader? Yeah, I think it's one thing to read entrepreneurship books and, and understand concepts with like an organization being the vector, some of its parts and, you know, how do you build consensus? How do you seek out the best ideas? And all of these are great and academic, but you know, when it all comes together in the real world. And then, you know, what's cool about a company like an Accenture is they they have a customer too. And like, the, the, these are big customers, right? And so the dynamic between like, okay, you've got, you know, you've got your, your 
senior vice president, you know, but they're reporting to that customer. And actually, like, you know, how do you make sure that that everyone is is on the same page? And sometimes they're they're not. And how do people navigate that? And how do you navigate customer requirements that might not even make sense sometimes, especially when you're dealing with the government? That can happen. I just thought that was really cool because obviously they got to solve for the short term, but they got to preserve relationships for the long term and seeing how people did that. I think that's something that every entrepreneur can relate to. Well, it's clear to me the path that you did ultimately choose, which is entrepreneurship. We'll talk a lot about the how and why, but before I'd like to know what career path did you not go down, but always thought you would? Yeah, I, well, going back to my original story, I always thought, uh, you know, medicine would be the career path for me. Interestingly enough, my, uh, my co-founder and I both wound up, uh, marrying physicians. So, you know, we, mm. <laughs> I guess we vicariously, uh, scratched that itch somehow, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, uh, I felt like, you know, that path was very preordained and very rigid. And that's not to say there isn't room for it. Obviously there's a lot of room for innovation and creativity there, but not in the same way and not at the same pace as, you know, entrepreneurship. And so, you know, that was a, a pretty distinct choice that I made. And, and honestly, that choice was made when going up to MIT to, you know, be in the, the bioastronautics training program and, and, you know, work on my PhD up there. At that point, I was like, there's some really cool stuff going on in the world. This would be a huge opportunity cost for me to, to not do that. You've taken a few turns that I think were doors that closed that perhaps you didn't anticipate or probably I, get, I bet your parents didn't anticipate. I look at your background and you went to MIT to study, like you, you have a paper, I think, where you were looking at for your PhD, the thermal simulation of spacesuits during Martian extravehicular activity. And when I look at that, I ask myself, how the heck did that guy find a job in the solar industry or why maybe even? And certainly Eddie, your co-founder, is still very much thinking about things outside of this planet in very real ways. So what was your, I'll borrow a term that you used, your climate wake up story. And how did you find your way into the solar industry when you had very intentionally gone to MIT to explore space? Yeah, well, things always uh, have a way of coming full circle. So if you look at, uh, at what we do today and kind of how we've had an, an impact in the, you know, in solar and in climate, you know, some of the basic physics of, of what I was doing at MIT actually relate pretty nicely. But the longer story is that, um, yeah, while I was in the lab in the aerospace department, our advisor, both myself and then Eddie, my co-founder, our advisor was, um, was David Newman, and she actually became the deputy administrator at NASA. I had just met this pretty dynamic individual that, you know, is, was writing software for SpaceX and had founded high-tech men's fashion company. And, and I was actually coming off of not only that research project, but I, I had also uh, I had a grant from the Gates Foundation to build and deploy um, unmanned aerial vehicles for medical supply delivery in, in developing nations. And so all these things are kind of swirling around. And, and we said, well, now, now is really the time, you know, we're, we're working on all these things that are, that are happening off planet. But we were starting to see kind of major things that were happening on our own planet. And growing up in the Midwest and in Michigan in particular, one of the wake up calls I had, you know, someone we we're just talking about like, oh, where do you want to live someday? And they were like, oh, I want to, you know, I really want to live in Michigan. And I was like, well, that's cool. Like, why? You know, uh, and it was like, oh, because, yeah, from a climate change perspective within two decades, like that's the place to be. 
I was like, wow, um, that really drove home kind of the, the immediate need. And then another couple things that really came together and, and we, we started getting really passionate about one was, you know, there were all these new software frameworks that were coming out, you know, the whole Andreessen Horowitz software is eating the world type thing. And, and so, you know, starting a startup around those frameworks was becoming easier. And then the third was you've got kind of cool innovations and like robotics and stuff that used to be military grade, you know, was now available off the shelf. So you have all these, these things come together. But what's interesting is that when we started Raptor Maps, we started in, in an industry that we also didn't know anything about before, which was the agriculture industry and specifically potatoes. And so when we went into Y Combinator, we were working on ag tech to minimize fertilizer runoff, to maximize crop yields and basically limit the environmental damage from farms while increasing the return for farmers. And that is actually the basis, some of that software that we built ended up being the basis of software that we applied to the solar industry. So yeah, our original foray was uh, a little bit different than, than what we ended up doing. Uh, I like that from potato farming to photon farming. You know, Nikhil, I appreciate that you outlined and even brought it back to kind of three points, climate migration, the relative ease of software deployment and the need for it and things like these military, uh, I think you may have called them sensors becoming commercially available. Can you talk a bit about the underlying technology and in particular, the notion of this just sort of deploying military grade remote sensing and building software around it and how that initially was meant to serve farmers and the underlying problem that you're trying to solve and, and how that can be applied to other sectors? Absolutely. So. You know, there are a lot of words for for when we talk about different types of sensors. You know, we, we use you can say remote sensing, you can say IoT and, and but but fundamentally what it means is that you've got sensor technologies, you know, there are new ways in which you can package them, new ways in which you can move them around, new ways in which they're able to communicate back. And so concretely what this led to, this kind of digitization and miniaturization and, and you know, uh, and some of the technologies that were developed by governments and, and actually in the aerospace industry, it was things like better satellites and higher resolution satellites. It was things like drones and the ability to put different types of payloads on drones, things like having more sensors out in the field, um, kind of IoT and connected devices that are always listening. And so, you know, it's one thing to kind of have all of these things and apply them either across a bunch of different industries or, or in any one particular industry. It's another thing to make sense of all this signal, right? Because that's, that's all it is. That's what, the way we think about it is signal. And so, you know, we were like, you know, anyone who's ever looked, for example, at a thermal image of, of anything, like, you know, if it's your, your hand or, or a stove or a solar panel or whatever, you're like, this is really cool, right? There's some, there's clearly signal here. There's, there's something I can see here. But how do you combine that with other types of data and, and do that at scale and, and have a meaningful impact on the industry? That's really where we recognized in the early days of Raptor Maps that a digital twin approach for our vertical, like that, that was critical, bar none. If you didn't have that, you were never going to be able to take advantage in a meaningful way of all of these new advances in technology. Okay. Talk to me about the concept of a digital twin, because candidly, I'm not sure I understand it. And I will bet that I'm not the only one. Yeah. So 
you know, in the early days, so we're talking, you know, 2015, 2016, Raptor mm-hmm. Maps, when we were representing actual farms, right? So what, what does a digital twin for a farm look like? Well, what do you need to know? You got to know like, okay, you've got different types of soil in different places. You've got different crops in different places. All of those crops may be spaced out differently. You know, how much fertilizer did I put down? So on and so forth. And so you build up this, this model where it's not just a map, but it's a representation of, of all of the different types of data, including what did someone get out of it? And so now that concept, you know, very quickly, you know, this ended up perfectly applying to the solar industry. And we actually, um, we started getting a lot of inbound interest from solar industry professionals that were, you know, we, we're a Y Combinator company. So we love the word hacking in, in, the, in the YC sense. They were hacking around with all of these new sensors and data capture modalities and everything that they could get their hands on. But they didn't have this like software framework. They didn't have this digital twin. They didn't have any way to, to make that scale. And what we realized is that we could take a lot of the concepts that we had developed in the early days of Raptor Maps and directly apply them to the solar industry to create a, a an underlying digital twin that would be standardized, that could be standardized across the entire solar industry. Because that's what you have to do before you even start to think about incorporating all these these new exciting sources of data. So a digital twin is a digital representation or I'll even call it like allocation or a database of a physical product. Yeah. And it's, I think a good way to think about it. So bringing it home for solar is it's, you know, you've got the physical, you know, you've got your modules, you balance the system, all of that kind of stuff. Like that's clearly represented physically somewhere in the world. But then you also have, so you have like your civil, but then you have your electrical too, right? So it's it's the relationships and everything that goes along with it. And it's everything you need to not only understand, you know, what's going on with that asset, but as and when you have new types of information, do you have a framework to layer that in? And that's really when we're talking about a digital twin, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, and you had mentioned that it's, useful not just for the planting of the potato, but the harvesting as well. The digital twin serves, this will resonate for solar geeks, it serves as proof of the yield of the crop, right? Put in a thousand seeds and the digital twin shows a thousand seeds planted of certain varieties. And now, unlike in the years past where maybe you were doing it in Excel, maybe you were doing it on paper, you have this software platform to say, okay, 732 potatoes of X percentage diverse, so distribution of varieties yield were, resulted. And we can look at now at uh, when it rained and we can look at when uh, there, it was windy or cloudy and try to hypothesize with the additional data layers, what that plot of land can do in, in the future. Am I, am I kind of understanding this better? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you, you bring up a great point um, is the predictive capability, right? If you, Mm. you know, if you model the weather going forward, you know, you can start to play out, well, how does that affect the yield and in very similar terminology, right? We start to talk about return and IRR and, you know, so interesting. Yeah. Future cash flows. We had, we had Lee, we had Lee from Resurity on and they're doing a lot of stuff around this meteorology and predictive analytics. And we had Nick from Soulcast on and like his, his yield resource model is respected as the best in the world 
and what I'm understanding, what I'm hearing is, you know, two brilliant MIT grad students began a process of finding a market for their technology. Yeah. So one of the things that we, you know, I, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, if you ask them what, what really kind of motivates you, part of it is, is the end mission. But part of it is also if you look around and you're like, man, people aren't doing this right. We need we can do it better. And so what that meant practically for for us was that we saw people treating all of these new tools and frameworks and everything. It was it was like you have a hammer looking for a nail. And we said, no, what actually makes sense is fundamentally, you know, what is what is the vertical? What is the industry that you want to transform and build that digital framework from the ground up? And the reason, you know, and, and you know, so it, it's kind of funny because if you think about the hustle and you bringing it back to like, you know, the, these engineering skills and and kind of what what Eddie, the background that Eddie and I have, it didn't stop us from calling, you know, cold calling a hundred agronomists and a hundred farmers and and really getting into the nitty gritty to the point where you know we were trusted enough to to go bolt you know, sensors and things like that onto quarter million dollar harvesters. And so that is the level of industry understanding that you need in order to affect change. And so as very early on in Raptor Maps, because now, I mean, we've been in solar for, you know, almost a better part of half a decade now, right? It's five, five plus years. Um, but very early on in Raptor Maps, as we saw that the solar industry was having these scaling problems and they were coming to us we took that same approach. We're like, all right, we need to get out in the field. We need to. Yeah. And so it was, it was less about, yeah, can we push product and more about what is, what am I not understanding that I need to go stand next to someone in a solar farm and shadow them for a day to really understand. Hey, Warriors, if you're subscribed to my email newsletter, then you probably saw an email come through about my good friend, Sheldon Kimber who I consider to be one of the preeminent thought leaders around how our industry can scale faster and hit gigaton level decarbonization. And while there's so much I could say about Sheldon, the thing I want you to know is that he's recently written another blog post all about the nexus of deep deep carbonization. You see, Sheldon is the CEO of Intersect Power, which is a clean energy company that is looking at innovative and scalable low carbon solutions to customers' needs across North America and beyond. And Sheldon and his team really believe that the zero carbon industries of tomorrow will be enabled by clean electricity technologies of today. And that deep decarbonization will be enabled by the historic affordability and availability of renewable energy, which is what Intersect develops. You can learn more about Sheldon and Intersect Power. Read his latest blogs over at intersectpower.com. I would really encourage you to go take that opportunity right now. Wait, not right now. You're in the middle of a podcast. So queue it up or click on the links that we've got in the show notes. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. HexSolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. 
they now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Now, along the entrepreneurial journey, a core question everyone has to ask is, am I, am I solving the right problem? Like Seth Godin says, you have to know when to stop digging. Exactly. And also correlating to that, there's a term um, known as product market fit that in Y Combinator, I'm sure they talked a lot about, and you guys spent a lot of time around. Talk about the process of finding product market fit and identifying where your technology is a nice to have versus solving, removing a block out of the, out of the way. Yeah. So, you know, another kind of thing we talk about is, is like a hair on fire problem. There are, there are all kinds mm-hmm. of analogies. I'm sure you, you know, <laughs> all, all, all the listeners here have, have heard them all, right? Painkillers versus vitamins and things like that. And I think for Raptor maps, you know, obviously, you know, the being that broader system of record for the solar industry, enabling lifecycle management and, 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 you know, doing what we do. There are lots of little pain points, little and big pain points along the way where you're looking at that saying, yeah, there is, we know there's product market fit here because people are going through an inordinate amount of pain and we can make their lives much easier. So, mm. you know, when it comes to supply chain verification, you know, these are very manual processes. There's a lot of risk, spreadsheets, all kinds of stuff. You know, you have to do it anyway, you know, enabling people to automate that. Or when it comes to inspections, it's not like, hey, here's a nice to have. It's, well, you used mm-hmm. to do it in a very dull, dirty and dangerous way. How do we make it so it's safer, it's more transparent, it's, you know, it lower, it's better for everyone. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Product market fit is something that we have to make mm-hmm. sure every on-ramp and kind of every capability for Raptor Maps that we provide is, you know, we're, we're, our customers are doing it because the alternative is, is obviously, you know, going to be more painful. And we don't want them to, we don't want them to have that pain. We want them to be able to scale the solar industry. What did your wife have to say about you leaving a PhD program to start the business? Good question. (laughs) Um, She was very supportive and is very supportive. So a little bit of background there. Um, We met when we were both undergrads. So we've kind of uh, supported each other's journeys um, and watched each other grow. So I think by the time you get there, there's a certain amount of both trust and understanding of the other person that like, yeah, this is what you, this is what you mm-hmm. want to do. Practically from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I was like, all right, sweet. You have stable income. So <laughs> although she wasn't my wife it. at the time, so I couldn't be that over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, with that in mind, she's got stable income. Yeah. You met Eddie in grad school as well. Did you guys kick things off by raising money? Like how to, apart from finding, finding product market fit, you also have to figure out how to pay yourselves and your staff to, to get this thing off the ground. Yeah, very. I mean, so when you go into Y Combinator, you know, there's that, the standard YC deal, which is, you know, a little over a hundred K and, um, but that's not really to like, yeah, let's go hire a bunch of people. And, you know, talking about product market fit, like, you know, the advice you get, and I completely agree with this is, you know, don't, don't hire till you found it, right? Like make sure that, and, and there's so much value in 
the co-founders themselves, you are the first sales team, you are the first engineering team, you are, you know, you can't, you got to get your hands dirty, um, literally and metaphorically. And so, you know, uh, that would be my advice to, to everyone, including ourselves. And I'm, I'm glad we, we stuck with that is we didn't get in the Y Combinator and immediately turn around and say, well, we have to go raise, raise money. We said, well, let's figure out what the heck is really going to move the needle for customers. And then what are the resources we need to go execute against that? You mentioned that Eddie was writing software, I think, for SpaceX and very much in line with SpaceX and Tesla model, you guys have effectively open sourced a lot of the, the core platform or product that you've created. For those who are unfamiliar, and since we don't talk a ton about software on the show, what's the core product that you decided was where you would spend your engineering time and what you would build layers of access to? Yeah. So when we talk about that, we, we do mean open source a little bit more in like the colloquial sense where it's, you know, the data, it's all the different data capture methodologies and things like that. And I'll, I'll get into specifically what they are. We have made that completely available to the public because at the end of the day, Raptor Maps as a software company, as that system of record, we are highly, highly invested in our customers uh, being able to go out and either capture the right type of data directly or contract with someone who will. And so concretely, one of the things that we um, that we talk about is aerial inspections and hosting aerial inspection data, um, not just from Raptor Maps, but including historical data from other vendors and really using that to, to help our customers un- understand and trend out degradation. And so to that point, we literally, we've published all the way down to, hey, if you want to go, you know, set up an airplane to do this, this is the exact camera you need. This is the lens you need. Here are pictures on how to mount it. If you want to use helicopters, this is how much it's going to cost you. If you want to use drones, these are the exact models. And here's a YouTube video showing exactly what you got to put into the iPad to fly the perfect pattern for a solar farm. So we've made all this freely available to the public because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do both as Raptor Maps and as an industry is so much bigger than kind of hiding that knowledge that, you know, that was a no brainer for us. We also open sourced a bunch of uh, this, we truly did open source in in the right way, uh, a data set for, for doing uh, machine learning on, on different types of um, anomalies from imaging. So we had a paper at ICLR, which is a machine learning conference and yeah, that's all on GitHub. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's one of those, Things that you learn through the process of, of uh, digging in as an interview. I didn't didn't know that you had open sourced the data set on machine learning. That's that's yeah. really insightful, and yeah. I'm sure that there are folks here who, on some level, are going to try to geek out and figure that that piece out as well. You just kind of reminded me of a trend that you know it wasn't there maybe five years ago, and we're seeing more and more of as um, even within as we grow our own ranks um, for software. Is you're getting more software developers so now we have to we have to distinguish when we say developer in the solar industry what are we talking about because there is now a burgeoning software developer ecosystem and so when we think about raptor maps like that is something that we want to enable and encourage and you know when people are are working on the solar industry you know they don't they don't want to spend 90% of their time conditioning data they want to go do something meaningful so it's like how do you give them the tools to do that yeah amazing well i think that folks listening are probably not only familiar with Raptor Maps, but they're familiar with aerial thermal imagery. We just 
did an episode in January on aerial thermal imagery with a competitor of yours, or I presume a competitor drone base. How do you view the competitive landscape? And you know what, what, what would you say to those folks who would say, I, I don't really see the difference between Raptor Maps and drone base or Heliolytics who just got acquired, you know, like how does Raptor Maps actually stand out or stand apart? What problem are you solving that they're not? Yeah, first off, any company out there that's going to make it faster, better, cheaper, and safer to capture data for the solar industry that it, that can be meaningful is is doing a credit to the ecosystem. Um, so you know whether that's you know aerial inspection companies, whether that's people providing you know field services and applying new technology. Um, so I think that's it's definitely a good thing. Um, now, the way Raptor Maps operates is that, you know, we host within the digital twin, not only, you know, aerial inspection data. So we'll do the analytics, everything from kind of your overview, big picture, string outage stuff, all the way down to very, very granular analyses that are accepted by tier one manufacturers for warranty claims. But that's one on-ramp um, for Raptor Maps customers, because one of the other things that we do and how it all comes together for them is there are two other types of data. Um, one is think, uh, time series data. Think about it as like mint.com for like your DAS platform. Um, so we're able to, and we talked about the digital twin and how we have that electrical understanding baked into it. And so you can imagine that combining that with things like the aerial inspection data um, has a lot of benefits when it comes to you know normalizing that data, understanding how the actual production, how, you know, what am I getting paid and how does that line up with, with the reality on site? Um, and then the second um, very important um, capability we have is our customers will scan in equipment records um, into the system or record, and we can actually validate that um, in order to help them comply with supply chain traceability protocols. And also, Aha, yeah, there's the potato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there you go. There, it's all about the supply. <laughs> and so, you know, the full circle. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so I think, you know, we definitely see that as an on-ramp. Certainly, you know, we're, we're very, very proud of the work we do with aerial inspections. And there's a reason we, you know, make all of the data capture stuff public, but certainly if, uh, if we have customers that are working with other aerial vendors, you know, there is 80 plus percent of the value of Raptor Maps that hasn't even been touched yet where we can fully be compatible with, you know, your favorite neighborhood vendor. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, I think it's instructive to, to hear the way you say someone else's business is an on-ramp to my business. And it's well enunciated in the sense that as a tech platform, you're not only making money, although I'm sure you compete directly for aerial information gathering with some of the others mentioned, but you're providing a platform, a system, as you call it, of record that allows for the three types of data you just mentioned. I'll repeat them for those who maybe got lost. Aerial inspection data, DAS, which is data acquisition system data, which is all the electrons moving around and how they're moving around and equipment records for validation of what happens when the project goes in, when it gets installed, even I presume equipment validation for any repairs and, and things like that as it gets, as it gets changed out. Did I capture that right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the, okay. the kind of one other cool thing, we think of it as like Slack for solar, but it's the, you know, the, all of the storage and notes and everything that come along with that. And the reason that's so important, and we're seeing this, I mean, there's, when we talk about community, we're also seeing that quantitatively it's, you know, people mm. are sharing the site owners or the data owners are authorizing 25, 30 other people 
including their counterparties, including IEs, you know, uh, the, the owners, developers, all, all these different um, parties to come in and collaborate and effectively use that platform to make decisions and drive action and get, you know, kind of put this whole paradigm of like classic report generation and emails and all that stuff in the past. So it's been exciting to, to enable that. I'm going to ask more questions around like just technology that I'm aware of. How is that different from Power Hub, for example? That presumably does a similar thing in terms of allowing access to platform data and drive action around it. Yeah. So ultimately, you know, we see with Raptor Maps, just like with Mint.com or something like that, you, you know, you're not, you know, they're not trying to be your bank, right? They're, but mm. they're also, you know, it's not just maybe banking data, it's kind of your entire, you know, net worth and all the different sources around that. Yeah, and your so, budget around how yeah, you spend Yeah, yeah, your budgeting and things like that. And so we we see it as a tool where, um, you know, you're taking data that's historically siloed. So that's not to say yeah. it doesn't live somewhere else and there isn't a lot of utility in, in the other place where it is, but in combining it in a very, very structured way into this digital twin, you're able to create value um, in the tangible form, right? Increased internal rate of return, you know, for the operators, it's, you know, lowering their costs, things like that, that, you know, wasn't possible before. Nikhil, you've said a bunch of stuff that is just like, they're little earwigs in my brain. And when I hang out with you next, I want to know more about the way you think around these analogies like the mint.com for solar or the Slack for solar. And I would encourage others. It's really smart marketing. And I, do, I just don't think folks when they do think about it, come up with the right analogies. And I find that you have, and, and it's for me compelling because I am a marketer and I love being able to easily explain hard to understand things. And you have very nicely unpacked both the Slack for solar and the mint.com analogies. So thank you for that. I hope that it's instructive for other CEOs and entrepreneurs listening for how to think about the way folks can better understand your product. And that's important. I sometimes I'll say to folks who I, I'm not, I haven't quite gotten them to say as, uh, as freely as you have in this interview, what they do, I'll say, look, when you go to a dinner party or a Christmas party with your partner and somebody asks you what you do, how do you answer the question? And essentially, if you don't have one, a, a handful of these anecdotes, then you're lost and they are also lost and everybody's bored, but you've been uh, very uh, you've been very helpful at giving me a better understanding of the broader business. And I mentioned Lee uh, at Resurity earlier, like he did a similar uh, service to his supposed competitors on his interview where he talked about the differentiation around like insurance products and um, and and how they kind of set themselves apart. So I, th I kind of bucket you uh, in that in that group of highly intelligent folks who've helped us kind of understand things better. As an entrepreneur, you have to parse a lot of data. You have to actually think about how to prioritize your time. And that impl implies that you've got things that you can't do and things that you don't want to do and things that you want to do that are hard. Talk about the, the struggles that you've encountered and how you've overcome them in terms of the things that, that have presumably stood in the way of you succeeding, but you've been able to navigate them. Yeah, I think, you know, bringing it, full circle to kind of the early days of a startup where it's, it's you personally doing everything, you know, up until I would say fairly recently, I, um, at least kind of the 
for the the non software engineering uh, part of Raptor Maps, I felt like I'd personally done a lot of it, and that's how I learn. Um, and that's really helpful in the early days. But at some point, you hit a scale where you're you know you're obviously going to bring in people and talent that have talent that you don't have, which is very good, but you're not going to have the time to even go and and learn that. And you just have to trust that they, that they know what they're doing. And so I think that's uh, for me a challenge because I'm definitely one of these like, yeah, individual contributor, like, all right, is it, you know, what's our, what's our messaging or I like, oh, you know, we're, we want to help a customer. Just put me on that call. Right. And so scaling something beyond myself, um, that's been a uh, just a personal struggle that uh, I'm always looking to to get better at every single day because I'll still tell customers. Yeah, I mean, I, I put my phone number in the bottom of every email, right? It's like, <laughs> um, yeah. So mm. yeah, it's hard. I was just on a coaching call with one of my clients today, and that was one of the things that we talked a lot about was as a CEO being able to delegate. Uh, you know, that's it's a re- it's a really difficult extraction. Yeah. And I, I presume as a, as a software minded engineer, you've gotten good at trying to put it into SOP, like your think, your thought process. But oftentimes we leave that on the table. We don't take the time to sit down and think about how we do things to, in order to leave those as digital twin of the, of your thought process, right? That somebody else can replicate. As you have explored now in the way that you, I'm sure very very systematically went through kind of understanding the solar industry. I'm curious who stood out to you in your early, you know, five years ago, as you were kind of looking at the solar industry, who stood out to you as like the success story or the icon that you studied? And well, how was, how was that company or person instructive for the way that you kind of moved into the solar industry? So I think the biggest success story for me, you know, especially coming, coming at it from a a venture back startup, perspective is people look at clean tech 1.0 as as this like abject failure right it's like man this this really poisoned the well for for a decade plus but i don't see it that way i see it more as just like in 2008 you had some of the strongest companies coming out of the the financial crisis and and they're some of the most resilient companies i think it did the same thing um, in some ways to everyone who was able to emerge from that and make the solar industry stronger and, and the renewable energy industry stronger. I think that collectively is the biggest success story. Where now, I mean, you're seeing it, right? You've got changes in administration, you've got supply chain perturbation, you've got even just extreme weather, like all of these things where you could say, man, you know, any one of these is just gonna is just gonna kill the industry or set it back. But it, but it doesn't, right? It's resilient because I think it was forged from from that tough environment. And so, yeah, that's, I, I can't differentiate because I think there's so many people mm-hmm. <laughs> that deserve credit for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's quote worthy even how, and, and how you said what you just said. And I can appreciate the, the idea that the decades long struggle is itself a success story. Uh, and it set the tone and the pace for you and many like you to succeed now. You know, you've been exposed to some really important critical thinkers along the path, uh, along your journey, folks that are working at NASA, folks at YC. Are there any lessons or takeaways that have been instilled for you from those mentors that you pass along now to folks on your team or to others that you might be mentoring? Yeah, I guess the one one that kind of immediately comes to mind is, um, you know, 
my advisor at, at one point during my career was, was Jeff Hoffman and he's a, he's an astronaut. Um, and he was one of the people that repaired the Hubble space telescope. And what wow. a lot of people don't realize about kind of astronauts in general is obviously they, you know, you know, that they're highly trained, you know, that, um, you know, it's a lot of hard work. No one thinks it's easy. There was just one particular thing that I didn't realize a lot of the astronauts who are trying to do spacewalks will do. And some of them will even do this proactively. And maybe you got to put a, an NSFW tag on, on this, but they'll actually, you know, remove their fingernails before they fall out and the really hard gloves. And, and that is just such a tangible level of dedication to, to the craft and to knowing that like this, like talk about mission critical, right? There's nothing more mission critical than going there and repairing something that humanity's, you know, using to look at the universe, stuff like that. And, and that's when it brought home for me, like, yeah, all of these success stories, you know, there's just, it is competency. It's incredibly smart people, but it is no substitute for just having that insane drive. And so even in a startup, right, we hire, we, we like to, we work with the best of the best, but that alone doesn't mean that, you know, it's, you, that, that's just part of it. You gotta have that what hustle. What a tremendous, yeah. what a tremendous story. Hustle and grit. Yeah. Oh man. I, I, it makes me grit my teeth just to think about removing my fingernails. What a, what a fun, uh, I'm gonna have to now look into this whole, I'm sure there's, all kinds yeah. of stuff on the internet to learn more about that. Nikhil, I'd love to be able to spend a whole lot more time with you, but we're coming to the end of our conversation. I have a few more questions. If I can borrow some, some moments from you please. and yeah, and they're, uh, they're around what we call learning leadership and legacy. I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. You didn't make it into grad school through lack of reading. So I'd love to know what books you recommend when folks ask you for help or insight, or maybe it's just a book that has left a permanent legacy on the way you think. Yeah, I think there are a few different um, types of books that really resonate with me. One is, you know, the classic kind of the, the, the true grit success stories, right? So like the right stuff um, types of books, you know, one that I, I really like, and I, I go back to every couple of years is Into Thin Air and the, the Everest story. And you know, for those of you yeah. who haven't read it, John Krakauer, um, because I think there's a lot we can learn from from both. You know, we, we'd like to think of a success and failure as binary. And obviously, you know, spoiler alert, there's, that, that is a very tragic story. But there were yeah. within that failure, there were certain successes um, and kind of, uh, you know, what are, what are the lessons we can take away? And, and it's always thought provoking to me from a business standpoint. And I think increasingly more from a life standpoint, um, I really do like measure what matters and thinking about, mm. you know, how do you, what are the metrics that you define your organization and your life around? Um, and then, you know, the classic, you know, hacking growth, because the secret with hacking growth is that it's not just hacking, it's actually extremely methodical. So that's kind of the point of that book is that there are no shortcuts. Um you know, uh, is this Sean Ellis? That's the Sean Ellis book. Um, I love yeah. that. And then, you know, I think this one, this is just a fun read for those of you who haven't read it. And I'd be shocked if I'm the first person to mention this is the hard thing about hard things. Um, right. And finally, yeah, I wasn't, Horowitz. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring this one up, but you, you mentioned like, what's a book that kind of just had an impression on you. And this is yes. one that my friends, I had a few friends that are like, oh, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. And for those of you who have ever seen 
the Netflix show BoJack Horseman, um, you you would think like oh mm-hmm. it's just a cartoon and a comedy or whatever, and it's actually the writing is is pretty good in it. Uh, and and so the writer Raphael Bob Waxberg, he has this book. Um, it's a collection of short stories called someone who will love you in all your damaged glory. Um, so my friend Andrew actually really recommended this book. And I just thought it was really thought provoking. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was, it's a fun one to sit down and maybe even listen to an audiobook with your, your significant other. And it's just, it was just so different than kind of anything else I'd read more recently that I was like, huh, yeah. I want to talk to someone about this, but shoot, I got to get everyone to go read this book before I do. So <laughs> <laughs> that is a fantastic recommendation. And especially, you know, it's not often that we get recommendations that are also, I'll say like modern author books, unless they're like very tactical business books. And I love when I can get something that is fiction literature or, or fiction ask, I, I presume that is thought provoking. Someone who will love you in all your damaged glory. Uh, by Raphael Bob Wexberg. Can I leave a digital twin of that <laughs> of that book in uh, in the show notes? Do you have a particular morning or evening routine that helps set the pace for your day, or you know, helps keep you organized? Yeah. So my morning routine has has changed because when uh, when my wife was actually uh, deployed to Korea. Um, she rescued two very large uh, Great Pyrenees wow. uh, from the meat uh, trade. Um, and so, wow. you know, which uh, is obviously massively fallen out of favor there. So now you've got all these dogs that, that need a home. And so my morning routine now is that wow. I get a giant paw to the face alerting me that it's morning. Um, <laughs> so that's a heck of a way to wake up. Um, yeah. But then practically, I think... Um, I, I love checking um, Hacker News. That's kind of my my go to yeah. um, because mm-hmm. I feel like if it was important enough to make you know the top of Google News or something like that, it, it's going to be there. Yeah. But it's not just kind of your typical social media echo chamber. So that's one of the first things I I look at. Nikhil, I'm sure that more than a couple of Solar Warriors who are grateful for the opportunity to have a virtual coffee listening to your story or they're going to want to reach out to you? Where do you like to be found? Where can people engage with you? Yeah, absolutely. You can, um, you know, find me through the website. You know, we're, <laughs> I still, mm-hmm. for the most part, if you yeah. send an email on the website, it probably will pass through my inbox uh, at some point. That's Raptor Max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, certainly find me on LinkedIn. Um, I love going to conferences. Um, I know, you know, I, I know it's been a, a tough, tough time for everyone with, with COVID and, you know, I'm sure everyone's kind of got their own personal journey there, but to the extent that you feel safe and you're able to come out, um, you know, we, you know, we would love to see you at, at solar conferences and then, yeah, I love, you know, especially pre COVID, I love traveling. So I'm the kind of person that if I'm like, Hey, I'm in your city (laughs) and you know, can we meet up and Oh, by the way, can you give me all the secrets and recommendations? Um, you know, you, you never know. So that's awesome. Uh, so, yeah. So do you publish somewhere, the cities that you're traveling to, where folks can be like, hey, uh, you're in my town. How would they find that? Yeah. So typically it'll, in my out of office, it'll, it'll say where I actually am. Got it. So we got to email you once, we have to email you once a month yeah, exactly. and see where you're going. Fair enough. Well, Nikhil, I'm definitely going to shoot to meet with you at one of those conferences. Uh, and in the meantime, 
Let's end today with a bold prediction, as we always do. Nikhil, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball as we barrel through 2022? I think that ESG reporting, and this is a very specific one, but I, I will say there's a lot of money going into ESG. There's a lot of lip service around greenwashing and not a lot of action. And I think that that is going to change very quickly. Uh, I think it has to. Mm. Um, and so are we ready for that? Are, you know, are people who are moving money around <laughs> ready for that? Are people yeah. who are touching these assets ready for that? You know, and I don't think it's going to come from regulation. I think it's going to come from social pressure. So I'm sure people are seeing right. it. I just think it's going to happen a lot faster than people realize. Nikhil Vadhavkar is the CEO and co-founder of Raptor Maps. Nikhil, has been amazing. Getting to hear your story. Thanks for joining us today on Suncast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap on today's conversation. And I do hope that we came through on our promise to expand your thought process, your concept of what Raptor Maps is, what data gathering is, and the, the gold mine that is the data opportunity that currently is just not being mined very well. It's not very it's not being gathered and and curated well either and they're all in silos thanks to companies like raptor map not just our solar and broader energy data but so much more will be able to be archived and more readily accessible thanks to bright young minds like Nikhil that are bringing it to us if you're eager to keep learning well you my fellow philomath can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion on suncast over at mysuncast.com that's where i always link to the website, social media, links, and books, recommendations, etc. from each and every guest. Since you're already going to be online, I'd love if you jump over to LinkedIn, my social media network of choice, and give a like and a comment on the post that we've made about this episode with Nikhil. He and I certainly would love to learn how this episode resonates with you and who you think should hear this fascinating story. And then, of course, subscribe to the show and come back next week because we've got my friend Catelyn Mathis of Frack Sun coming on and more entertaining Tactical Tuesdays for your midweek pleasure as well. Lastly, thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this content free to you each and every week. You can learn more about our sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you can learn to partner and reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like you twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.